Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krauss and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today I talked to Nashville drummer Tim Horsley. Since 1998, Tim has worked with some of the best-known country artists in Nashville, including Keith Urban, Gary Allen, Dina Carter, Susie Boggess, and Jamie O'Neill. One of the many ways that Tim continues to diversify his talents within the music industry is becoming an expert at recording drums in his home studio. You can find out more about this podcast and other recordings we've done by going to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Working Drummer, on Twitter, Working underscore Drummer, and on Instagram now. This podcast is being made available July 29th, and we do not have our YouTube channel up, but it will be up very soon if you're listening to this on a later date. Hopefully it should be up and running. And as always, you can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe to the podcast where every week when a new interview comes out, it will be sent to your smart device where you can either stream it or download it for listening. And if you would, do us a huge favor on iTunes. There's a place where you can rate and review our podcast. Go there and write a review for us. It really helps out a ton. Here is Tim Horsley. Right now, I'm the house drummer for the Digital Rodeo Showcase, which is... Digital Rodeo is a website for independent country artists. And they're doing a showcase now. It's for all their acts nationwide at 3rd and Lindsley, doing it like twice a month. Mm -hmm. Hopefully going to be internet television soon. I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I got a little... uh, I have a drum drum lab in my basement, kind of like what you got down here. Yeah, yeah. I've been recording for people... How long a long have you, time. Yeah, how long have you been doing that? Because uh, I, I, this is one of the things that I wanted to mention was when I was looking around online at some of the things that uh, – or just kind of do some research background on you. Um, of course, I went right to your website. Yeah. And honestly, I, I have, I'm not up to date with my website. <laughs> and I looked at yours and I thought, that's great. It's simple. Everything I need to know is right there. And uh, even the about, okay, I need to see the about. I need to know more about Tim, right. what's going on. And you were like, I've been doing, I've been playing since I was four, playing, what, uh, live since you were eight or something? Yeah, I, I, uh, my dad was a southern gospel singer. And I well, got, and yeah. I want to get to that, but I wanted to say real quick. <laughs> yeah, I did it when I was about, a little kid. Yeah. That was about as much information on the website that I got. Yeah. Like it, 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 in the description, and then if you want to see what I've been doing or what I've done in the past, click here, click there, and it was all laid out super nice. Yeah, the bullet point thing is so much better than a narrative. Yes. Maybe you can scroll down the about page and just see who I'm recording with now, what projects have I going, what yeah. artists have I worked with on the road, what yeah, what music videos I've been in, what venues right. I've played, whatever. I think that's that was my point. Yeah. It's just that I, I thought the bullet point thing was was really great. Um, and I've, I've seen that a couple times, and, and uh, I think Jeff Brown has that on his website, and that was one of the first times I noticed it. I, I was like, man, I'm loving that, that idea. And well, so it was just My friend idea. David DeWeese, he uh, lives out in California now. Okay. I sent you the link. It's DeWeese.com. And right, he, right. he helped put that design together, and he's, that's just his feel. It's real easy. And, and um, Yeah. 
economic, you know. It's it's not all cluttered, right? You know, right. and it, but it is it still is WordPress, so um, I can get in there and edit the HTML and add stuff when things change and add links and stuff. Oh, I so see. I see, yeah. So he so put anybody the that's interested in me. doing, uh, you know, check out your website, mm-hmm. see kind of how that's done. Yeah. I thought that was really that was really. But going back to that. Uh, four years old. What's that about? Yeah, well, I was growing <laughs> up. My uh, my mom tells me I started. Um, t- I took a a tin of blocks and would turn the thing upside down mm-hmm. and take different blocks that were shaped like sticks and just wail on it. Yeah, from an early age. Mm-hmm. And I was more interested in doing that than playing with the box and building stuff. So <laughs> you're I building think grooves. They, yeah. <laughs> then they got me a drum set by the time I was. Um, I think they got me a drum set by the time I was five, like a real, like a Slingerland kit. Really? When I was five years old, yeah. What did your dad do? What did, what did you say? My dad, he, he still, he does 100 dates a year as a Southern gospel singer. He has a gospel group, a quartet. Wow. Okay. And he um, he has a little shuttle bus van, and they tour around and sing. Is it full band? And No, it's it? tracks now. Okay. You know, he's okay. singing with tracks now, but when... Back in the seventies, it was he had a band behind him, and I was playing drums at five. Holy moly! Yeah, so you were getting into it. Now, did you have a, a teacher or anything, any kind of formal training? At, at Unfortunately, a no. I was thinking about this the other day. I can't remember why, but I mean, I grew up in a pretty small town. Yeah, I had eighty-seven people in my graduating class. Wow! Actually, the band director, the high school band director, would taught me how to read music when I was like third or fourth grade. I'd take free period, and he'd go in there and teach me how to play on a snare drum and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And uh, But it was all geared towards contest, you know, like those uh, sort of state contests where you get together and you, right. and you, you know, just play snare drum solos and whatnot. And yeah, yeah. I wanted to play a kit, you know. Yeah. And when I'd go to his house, I remember being a little kid going to his house, he wouldn't even let me play on a, a drum. And I think if you're teaching a kid how to play the drums, it's like you got to let him play a drum. Yeah, you know, because right. he's not going to understand a practice pad, and I wasn't even playing on a practice pad. I didn't have these. I was playing on one of his kitchen table chairs with, like, you know what I mean, and so it'd be quiet. And I was just like, "This isn't any fun. <laughs> I don't want to do this." You know, right, right, right. But uh, no, I, that's the only formal training I had. I think I'm definitely a product of the um, the instructional video world. Okay, and I got into high school, and that really changed. That really changed my life a lot because I was able to – all these great players. I mean, nowadays, the Internet, it gives you information at the snap of a finger. Right, If right. you're curious about something that Vinny Caluda played on some In two solo, yeah, you can look at it. Right. When I was a kid, information was – it was rare. You know, finding out a piece of information about what someone well, was Did you doing, have access you know. to that? I mean, because – I mean, <laughs> I grew up in a, a, a major city, and I knew where – the drum store was there were actually a couple drum stores we didn't have one go to okay. didn't have one no no so how did you get out the I'm, I'm thinking well, DCI, I actually, the DCI videos yeah the DCI yeah. videos when they first started coming out right yeah and that was like how did you get a hold of them order them well or? I think I <laughs> a high school girlfriend got me a subscription to Modern Drummer yeah right for a Christmas or something and it was supposed to be shared between a buddy of mine and I ended up keeping them all um <laughs> Um, but it was in there. I think their advertisers were in there. You'd see yeah, people right. trying to sell those videos, and mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, I got to see that. Yeah. I think my first one was Tommy Aldridge. 
Oh, right. Because I'm a big, I, I've always loved double bass players. Mm-hmm. Think, you know, mm-hmm. I've always loved that. Um, and his was, I think, the first one I ever got. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen that one. Uh, yeah. and your, but your setup now is pretty small. It, yeah, it, it when I moved like to town, added- I remember growing up and, and just where I grew up and what I was doing. It's like I didn't have a lot of formal instruction, so I, I seemed to... How can I say this? I don't know. I, pro- I approached drumming more like a sport back way back when. I was in a progressive band, and I, um, we would cover Joe Satriani and Rush um, yeah. instrumentals and yeah. you know stuff like that. And so um, I didn't really know a lot of – if I sat down behind the kit to play, I wanted to play a lot of notes. And that's the right. simplest way to play. When right. I first got to town, my first gig was with uh, country singer Susie Bogas. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bass player friend of mine helped me up with that, and I realized somehow I was smart enough to realize that if I put something up, I was going to hit it. Right, right. <laughs> That's right. the simplest way I can say it. I remember thinking, um, I got all the music and all the you know some charts, and um, I thought to myself, wow, if 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 I set up more than this, I'm going to play more than what's here, and this won't last. You know, I mean that was just sort of a putting a band-aid on a problem at the time but that's what i did you know yeah, yeah. because i realized wow if i put all this stuff up i'm going to be tempted to start playing a lot of notes but when you help in a Susie baga song which would not have been good whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well and i think that's a thing that uh it, it is trying to strike that balance but i mean the the, the beauty of drumming and uh, drum set playing and is the physicality of it mm-hmm. and uh, that is an element there's no denying the fact that it's kind of like after a good bike ride or something like that. You get that adrenaline. You get those uh, neurons firing. Something about the physicality that feeds the body in such a way that I don't think any other instrument does. You know, That's true. Unless you're David yeah. Lee Roth jumping around like a crazy man. I think that playing drums is just one of those things that uh, it, there's that element of it. Now, taken to extreme or not, applying the musicality that's so important to making music as a drummer. When I saw a quote the other day, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up, so I'm not gonna attempt to, to say it. But but essentially, uh, it's about making music first and foremost. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. But not just being. But I look. I don't know. I just love the physical part of it too. Yeah. But the music has to happen first. It. It's Ralph Peterson. The more you know, the more musically you can play. And as a drummer, if you don't know music. Your drumming is reduced to mathematics and velocity, which is impressive for a while, but loses its sense of suspense and drama in a very short period. Yes. It, it, That's what, a great quote. Yeah. That's a yeah, really, really it's great quote. Down to, what does it say? Down to mathematics? Yeah, yeah. Dynamics and math. Reduced to mathematics and velocity. And velocity. Reduced to mathematics and velocity, yeah. yeah. And, and the music, uh, I, that is amazing because it's so easy to get caught up in mathematics mm-hmm. and velocity just for that and as a young player we're so taken in by that it's impressive right think about the first time you saw buddy rich a buddy rich solo and you watched his snare, his single stroke roll on a snare drum it's impressive and you just you're yeah. blown away by what yeah. he's doing right right um Drums and percussion are incredibly physical you're right there's a certain amount of facility you have to have in your hands and feet and so it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work, you know. Mm-hmm. you got to train your feet, which are not really meant to do anything. They're meant to walk around. Mm-hmm. They're long muscles. They're meant to make you walk and run, yeah. you know. And you got to train them, those little twitch muscles to play double strokes on your feet or mm-hmm. have accuracy to groove, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's easy if you're you – know, 
I I fell prey to this when I was young. That's what I got into was the facility of playing. Man, that's what I was trying to make the point earlier. It's like before I moved to Nashville, I was about the facility of being able to play. Yes. I wanted to learn, you know, you know, finger control and molar technique and double strokes with my feet and mm-hmm. playing heel down and heel up. And um, yeah. because I didn't have a mentor yeah. at the time, I was yeah. doing all on my own, watching these videos, which really isn't, yeah. it's one to, it's one dimensional. It's not interaction. And that's what I became. I kind of became this guy who could sit down and play, had a lot of facility. I could just, mm-hmm. I could whip out some singles. Mm-hmm. I could do crazy tricks around toms. But if you'd asked me to just play, I don't know, Sexy Drummer by James Brown, I probably would have butchered it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're right, at a certain point, because that kind of comes up to the idea about practicing. It's like at a certain point, once you have the facility, you have to just start listening to music and yes. practicing to make music. Yes. Um, yeah. Now, there are certain types of drumming. I have a buddy of mine who's the tour manager for Dream Theater. You know, Mike Mancini now is the drummer for those guys. Right, right. That music takes a certain amount of facility that's ever pushing forward, right? Right. right. But that's a very small, select um, group of people that play that kind of music. Yeah. And so, if that's what you do, yeah. if you're in a metal band, you know, you're going to have to push in the envelope of speed every time you go and play. Right. So, you're going to have to work on facility a lot. But right, right. now... For what I do for a living, the facility I have to have is about groove. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. versatility of style. Mm-hmm. When I first started, um, one of my first clients in my uh, drum booth down at my house, it was metal. It was a kid really? from Mexico that had this sort of, uh, it was metal. And I had to somehow conjure up this spirit of, you know, heavy in a, yeah. in a metal sort of way, not in like in a heavy sort of King's X sort of way, but, you know. And then the next client I had was a guy that was like conjuring up folk music from the 70s. You know, he was next in, in my queue of things to do. So I had to like, so when I think about now, when I think about practicing, it's about, it's about putting on different musical hats. It's about making sure that the, the pocket that I'm trying to play fits whatever the musical style it is that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much about the speed of my hands or my feet anymore. Well, the first time I saw you play, um, you were playing with Jamie O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, uh, I was out touring with Billy Dean. And oh, that's right. Okay. Our yeah. a banjo player was playing with Jamie as well. Ilya Tashinsky, Tish- right? Oh, or was it Chad Jeffers? I think it was Chad. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was Ilya. Uh, and and that's the first time I saw you play. Uh, and I I knew you had played with Keith Urban, and I mm-hmm. had seen videos and stuff like that. And I was somewhat familiar. I've been here since two thousand, so somewhat familiar with with what you look like. And I thought, oh, okay, oh, he's playing with Jamie O'Neill. That's great. And I I thought, man, what a that just feels great. Thanks. Feels really good. Um, also sitting side stage, there was just this arm movement that to me translated the physical with the sound coming out it's it, i made the connection it's like the arms are moving with the time mm-hmm. in such a way that i could with the sound off hear what you're playing you know what i mean sure it just it matched yeah. that but mm-hmm. it was really great and i don't remember if i had a chance to talk to you or say hello or introduce myself i i think so because when we cre- reconnected at the nashville drummer jam i remember the first i said to you oh i know you because I, yeah. I was like oh, we've met on the road now, before yeah there's a and there's a time when um you played 
Well, the, the, the airing of the Gary Allen performance on Jay Leno mm-hmm. was the night before, and we were downtown at the uh, Kodo Drummer's uh, performance. Oh. And, uh, I bet that and, was cool. And I walked by, and you were in the lobby of the Sherman, not the Sherman, downtown, and I was with my family. I told my wife, I said, hold on just a second. And I walked over to you, and I said, hey, man, sounded great last night on Jay Leno. And you looked at me like... Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it took me off guard. <laughs> thanks. My wife's like, what was that all about? I said, let's just go. Oh, wow. <laughs> but anyways, so uh, I find it interesting that you have this, this obsession with double bass playing and uh, and heavy playing and, and uh, the DCI videos that, well, uh, just that the style in which you were diving into mm-hmm. as a young player. I would have never guessed it's, it's evolved. It, it definitely has evolved. So just moving to Nashville. Can you help me understand? And I'll say one more thing, and I'll let you go. Uh, let me on go. With this. We're done already. No, we're, <laughs> trying, we're, we're trying to we're trying to uh, shorten these up for time. <laughs> That's really thanks, well, no, Tim, I'm, I'm prepared to talk for a while, man. You can edit this together. <laughs> um, let me address this, what you said a minute ago about the arm motion and stuff, because that was a great anecdote I had. I learned in um, Australia. I was doing the Goodwill Games. Okay. In Brisbane and the Coors, remember the Irish band, the Coors. Yeah, yeah, they were the, sure. They were the closing act for the closing ceremonies for the Goodwill Games. And I they, remember what they look like. Yeah, yeah, most people do, right? <laughs> well, we rehearsed for days. Basically, I spent four days in a masonry block room at an arena in Brisbane as they rehearsed this gigantic performance because it was not only a stage show; it was a the floor was had dancers and it nice. was a very big, big production. production. I watched them rehearse two or three times, and I'm, I'll never forget the the last time I watched them rehearse because the full band was there with tracks and everything. I sat in the very it was empty whole arena. I sat in the very back of the room, and I was watching, and they were just ants. You know, just you know, just it's the mic at the distance I was at. They were just so far away. But yeah, when they started playing, I could see that girl playing the drums mm. from that far away. I was like, mm. I can see her physicality as she's playing. Interesting. And I was like, wait a minute. So I got up in there behind her, and I was just like, she's, I was just like, it reminded me of what Billy Ward, you know who Billy Ward is? I the guy sure used to do. write. <clears throat> He's sure got do. this great description about how he likes to, about how his arms move in time. It's like he talks about, I think his wife makes fun of him, like he says she's like a one of those little wind-up mm-hmm. monkey dolls that plays the cymbals. Because his hand, will, his arms move in time as he's playing. And I took sort of what he did and was what I watched her doing and thought, I need to incorporate this into what I do because whether we like it or not, it's a live performance. And I and when you're playing in bigger venues and you the people then the first maybe twenty rows can see the details of what you do, but the people that are past that mm-hmm. can't. And if I'm if I'm really right here, which is fine, they're they're not gonna sense get any sense of the energy that I'm putting Right. into what I'm doing. Right. And so I, that, that's where all that came from. It was from the Coors and it was from Billy Ward. And I thought, I'm going to put this into what I'm doing. And um, it works. And that's a, but as a drummer, when I saw you play, mm-hmm. it, it seemed like it was you were using that as a way to keep time. Well, I mean, I, well definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Right. But it, it, it's like that was getting you from point A to point B. Because uh, I think even you know Erskine says time is not here when mm-hmm. you're hitting. Time is here. It's mm-hmm. it's in yeah. between the notes. I think it was Louis Belson. I remember him seeing in one of those old videos. Right, right. talking about playing um, 
swing about how time's a circle. I think it's the first guy I ever heard talk about how time is a circle. Yeah. And that's definitely what's in that that big that mm-hmm. that big backbeat. It's right. it's it's a it's a it's a it's a circle in itself. It's sort of an S shape, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's moving because it's going up at a certain point and it hits you know the you know it would hit beat one here and hit beat two here and it would hit beat three here and hit mm-hmm. beat four here. So which definitely was mimicking the idea that okay. time is a circle that you mm-hmm. you have to feel. I can I can hear when guys aren't doing that. I, when I watch the guys on the road now, because tracks and click tracks are so oh they're ubiquitous. Everybody's got them on stage now. Right. right and right. when a guy is trying to hit a click like he's got a a gun like this going okay that was I got it. I got it. Like he's trying to target shoot. Yeah. You can hear it. Yeah. You can hear it and how they, you can just hear it because the placement is just what you think it is. It's like they're trying to target shoot. So it's a little in front and then it's a little back, a little in front, a little back, a little front, a little back. Just, just doing this the whole time. I see. Guys that are thinking about it being in a, that time is, is, is in a circle. Yes. It, it flows. It may, they may be a little behind it with something, but every time it's going to be that way. And so when it ebbs and flows, it's doing, it's, it's smoother. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes. It's a smoother thing. And so if they, if they if they come out of a fill and they're a little in front, they'll they'll play and the circle will slowly put them back in the middle right, of the beat. Right. If right. something gets a little behind or something, the the circle will sort of put them back in the middle of the beat. Yes. But if you're trying to target shoot it, it's like yeah. you'll come out of a of a fill and all of a sudden you'll hear that you're in the wrong place and you'll immediately try to jump back and go target pow, pow. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like you can hear it and you can just hear the it's a jerkiness. I can't explain it any other way. Well, right. It's it's it, and we aren't hearing the click. We aren't right. hearing the relationship. We're not hearing, the click. We're not hearing that stuff. No, they're again. It's making uh. music. As a working drummer, this is what you're given. Yeah. Okay. Here's the gig. We play to a click. We have tracks. I mean, you can't walk into an artist gig or another gig and say, "Listen, I don't play to a click. I don't do this and that." Right. If you, you want that particular gig. If that is the makeup, if you can't, uh, ha- if you don't have that luxury of saying, "Well, this is my band and this is how we do things," so can you address some of that? You know, I mean, some of the gigs, they're going to have all that stuff. So how do you? All of them do now. Right. Every one of them are going to have right. that in some degree. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So uh, you just have. To, I would say, in short, you have to remember that what you actually you brought it up first. You said you have to remember that no one else can hear. The references that you're hearing, mm-hmm. so your groove and pocket has to transcend the click track you're listening to. Mm-hmm. You know, it actually has to transcend the track that you're listening to because there's a possibility that the mix out front is not the mix that oh, you have yes. in your in ears. Right. Right? right. You know, you may be listening to subdivisions and parts that are in your mix that may not be translating out front because it just doesn't work that well. It yeah. takes a lot of rehearsal. Yeah, which I think is a dirty word in this town. No one likes to rehearse. You know, heaven forbid. Yeah, um, have to save money. Just go out and play, right? Yeah. So there's a possibility that the the things that you're listening to in your in ears aren't being translated out front, and so you have to think, well, how is my pocket sound? <laughs> you know, yeah. how good is this groove working? You know yeah. what I mean? How's yeah. my placement within the kit? I think I heard J.R. Robinson talking about that one time. <laughs> Um, about the placement of the beats 
of each hand and foot and how you can change the relationship between your hi-hat and your foot and your snare and totally change the way yes. that a song will feel. Think about that when you're playing live and make sure that whatever it is that you're playing is is working and mm-hmm. hopefully the front of house guy can manage all of the electronics that's going on to your left and that it's working out yeah. there. But you have to let that stuff go as far as the engineer's control, the tech, some of those things. Yeah, I've gotten and- an arm wrestling matches yeah. figuratively. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> or with front of house guys about that kind of stuff and it you know it just doesn't um i, I don't know it, it you almost have to uh kind of make sure that what you're doing is the best it can be mm-hmm. from your seat from yeah. your perspective oh yeah absolutely you know First brought up this podcast to me at the Nashville Drummers Jam. Yes, by the way, that's yes. Awesome. So I'm really actually glad this all worked out and we were able to do it. Yeah, me too. And, uh, yeah, you actually gave me the best compliment that night. You remember what you said to me? I do, I do. Uh, being uh, uh, for those who weren't there, I yeah. was tasked with playing the song Witch Hunt, which uh, I watched the video of uh, again. Uh, I was showing Mike we were going through. Yeah, and the one that's on my the one on yeah, my side. Yeah, yeah. I did a little edit. I mixed it. I tried to get some blow in out of it. <laughs> Well, I had seen you play um, probably three or four times before, and uh, I always loved your pocket. I always loved your feel. And, uh, you know, for people that know me, I'm a huge Neil Peart fan, grew up, you know. Same here, yeah. You know. And, uh, and it is what it is. Talk about uh, velocity and, you know, <laughs> mathematics. <laughs> Um, so it's fun every once in a while to sit down and geek out and, uh, and going to see the Nashville Drummers Jam was just a total blast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there was just so many great players playing all those great songs that uh, I grew up listening to. When you performed uh, Witch Hunt, there is a ton of huge tom fills, lots of physicalities. But one thing that you maintained was your feel, your pocket. And uh, I was like, that sounds like Tim. That sounds like you're playing Neil's parts, but you're playing, there's this pocket, there's this feel. And even watching the video again, I'm like, he's, I think it's the second verse. The second verse is really the only part of that song that has a backbeat in it. Yes. That song is, if those who haven't heard it before, is very orchestral. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very orchestral song. It's it's called Witch Hunt, so it's kind of, it's very it's like a dirge. It's um, it's a, a it's very, slow. It's slow for Neil. Yeah. But two things, man. Tons of big yeah. roundhouse. There are four or five roundhouse fills in that song within a span of two minutes. Right, right. I remember saying that to Chris Nix. I was like, and I to practice for that, I actually charted those out just for the exercise. I just for the heck of it. It's actually on the site. I got it together. It's on Facebook. Yeah, I did. And because everybody on Facebook, I remember everyone on Facebook was saying, I don't have enough drums in my house to even practice these parts. A lot of guys (laughs) were like, I don't have enough drums to do this. I took two kits and made all of the drums I needed. You know, I took my Yamaha recording custom kit and all of my Noble and Cooley toms and made the drums I needed to make that work. And uh, I just, for the exercise of it, I, um, I grew up listening to that music just like you did. And just I because I love it, I was like, I'm going to really show it some respect, quote unquote, and, and just really learn it. Just le- literally, really learn all the little intricacies yeah. about That's it. That's almost, almost all the guys did. And it paid off. Right. I, it really paid off. I was I watched that and I think that that worked. I'm really proud of that performance. You should you know? be, man. It, and it you, what really you said to me, you, I don't know, 
I, I'll never forget what you told me. He's like, how did you make that groove? It's something to that effect, what you said oh. to me. He goes, wow, that was really great. How did you make that song groove? Or you made that song groove? Now that's what you told me, and I'm just remember. Yeah, I always yeah. remember that. I was like, "Wow, that means I it su- I succeeded." Yeah. I mean, all due respect to Mr. Peart. Yeah. He is a pioneer. Yeah. But he's yeah. not known for his backbeat. You know what I mean? He's right, not right. known for. <clears throat> sure. We're talking about moving to Nashville and the learning curve you go through from where I said I was and where I am now. Yeah. When you're playing that kind of music, you don't have a pocket. And I moved to Nashville, and country music has a pocket. Like, it's got to have a pocket, and it's not his, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I had to, like, unlearn a lot of stuff. That's part of the Susie Boggess story. I had to unlearn some things and yeah. take drums away and and think about um, how to really play a two-beat, how really to play a train beat, you know, how to really to make these things make people want to dance. Yes, yes. You know? And I want to I want to touch <coughs> on me. that starting at that, that Susie Boggess thing. But I do want to say how ironic it is that you grow up, you're playing – this type of music, you come to Nashville, have to unlearn this stuff, and then just this year, you're playing this Neil Peart tribute yeah. thing on the big kid. I know, I know. But honestly, man, that's impressed me so much to feel, to you. hear the groove within this crazy ass song. Yeah, you know. So I'm thinking that's that's great. It can be done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I was. Thank you very much. I, I'll always remember that. So, wow, that kind of made my day. Actually, oh, you said good. Yeah. I, I, well, around the car, I was like, wow, that means I did. I, I, it worked. You know what I mean? Well, I'm here's really the thing about that. that. Um, I uh, my hat goes off to everyone that performed there because the place is jam packed full of drummers. The place is jam packed full of incredible drummers, mm-hmm. and I would be nervous as all get out. And to try and stay relaxed and to play well and to play back in time to keep a groove would be just yeah. – just, and so everybody that was up there, I'm like, good for you, good for you, good for you. That that was incredible. That was great. So to hear how it comes together in the midst of all that talent yeah. uh, was, was awesome. Um, but uh, – so how did you go about unlearning this? Was there anything that you could put your finger on yeah, that said? Exactly. There was a point in my in where I um, – a buddy of mine, we used to have uh, – this was long before iTunes. We had a um, a subscription to a, 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 a playlist from a – I can't even remember the name of it now, but it was some place in Japan that was like all these imported fusion CDs, like really rare performances of different jazz records, just crazy stuff. And I remember being at a thinking at one point, I was like, I have, I can either buy Terry Bozio and this Lonely Bears record, or I can buy this record with Steve Jordan mm-hmm. playing drums. And that was the pivotal moment. Like, I remember thinking to myself, where am I going at this? This is a crossroads where I'm like, I, I appreciate all this crazy polyrhythmic, you know, independence of Terry Bozio, but at the same time, I want to do this for a living, and I need to more sound like this than I need to sound like this. Right. And I bought that record with Steve, Steve Jordan, Jordan mm-hmm. you know. And that's how you unlearn it. You know, you you just start. Oh, well, I got to learn how to play this. And it mm-hmm. was I listened to pop songs and just track myself playing against pop songs and saying, "Why can't I make that feel right?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the first ones I did that with was. You're gonna laugh at me for this. Um, it was. Um, I think it was the, it was off the movie Space Jam, 
Okay, it was the track that Seal did for the movie Space Jam, and it was Fly Like an Eagle. Now, you think I'm full of it. Google that later and listen to the Seal's version of... Uh, um, oh, Seal's version. Seal's version of, of Fly, like, Fly Like an Eagle. Oh, yeah, And it yeah, is the yeah. grooviest sounding song, and I must have practiced that yeah, for I know six that months. Track. Sure. I'd play that down and listen with myself back to it. This is when I just had a little four track. And I was like, boy, that does not. That doesn't work. I'm no, that's no good. Yeah. And let's try again next week, you know. And I would yeah. sit and try to work out why, and it was just repetition, just listening and repetition, and just sort of unlearned and relearn. Or actually, didn't say that, unlearned it, but I just learned something new. I learned about it was time to start learning about groove, about how to make. And this is back to my original point because I'm in a place now where it's like, if I'm supposed to play something a little bit New Orleans. Yeah. Swampy, I got to pull that off. Uh-huh. If I'm playing pop country, I got to be able to pull that off. If I'm playing yeah. something that's metal, I got to be able to sort of pull that off. Right, right. And so it wasn't like I unlearned it. I just refocused myself and thought that oh, makes got, sense to me. Man. And my guess is that you've <clears throat> taken all that facility man. that you learned growing up and you applied that in such a way uh, that when it came time to sitting down and trying to cop what Steve Jordan was doing, mm-hmm. you had the facility mm-hmm. to do it. It was just a matter of shifting and putting the notes in the right place and balancing your kid out from top to bottom and yeah well my new obsession is um is 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 in recording now is being my own engineer because the way my drum booth is set up i'm sitting one direction looking at the drum set and then i turn 180 degrees and behind me is all the recording gear all my mic present rack screens in front of me programming tools, whatever I got is there, and the monitors are right behind me. So I spin one way and play and spin the other way and, and, and edit and, or you mm, know, whatever. Wow. okay. Right? Yeah. And so that's my new obsession is tracking, mic placement, mic choice, mic pre-choice, EQ, mm-hmm. compression. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my new – that's something else I'm practicing all the time. Well, let me <clears> – <throat> I, I wanted to ask you about that, but I just wanted to clarify something. Uh, when you were sitting down playing along with stuff – trying to relearn things you said you were tracking yourself yeah i had a couple mics at the time i was living in a duplex we didn't have a house yet and i had a storage facility out in bellevue yeah it was like one of those garage door place things and uh i had a korg sequencer i would sequence stuff in and and then i just track myself i would record myself with two mics just playing Along to stuff, along to my sequences, along to things, and then listen back to it and go, is that working? Is it not? Because yeah, that's the yeah. that's the only way you're going to get better. I mean, yes. I wish I would have had that a long, long time ago. But listening back to what you're doing, you really can hear. Um, it's hard to hear when you're playing it how groovy it is as, as opposed to when you're just listening to it objectively yes, and yes. you've got sticks in your hand. Yes. And I, everyone should be doing that. At this day and age, probably everyone is doing that. Right. But um, or if you're not, you should be. That's, <clears throat> uh, that's what I want to make you sure that I understood. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, is that is that you were playing along with stuff and saying, oh, it doesn't feel right, but you were recording, recording yourself. Yeah, I was recording it back, back and, and going, listening. wow, that wouldn't make, that couldn't make anybody dance. That would sit people <laughs> down. You know what I mean? That's not going to work. It's worked. It's worked. <laughs> so tell me about your home studio. Tell me what's yeah. what's been going on with that and and how. <clears throat> How long has that taken you to it get? It started off. It's it's a long. It's been a long time. I, my friends used to make fun of me because I've always had a hard time getting drum endorsements. Mm-hmm. If you look on the jacket of the CD, remember those CDs of the Golden Road record? We have one, <laughs> you have one right there on Keith's Golden Road record. He this on this is the a back, new one, a new brand new band called Queen. The Queen. Oh wow, that's, the, Queen. the Queens. I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, 
That's all right. Um, if you look on this, the jacket of that CD on the back, he's got a bunch of stuff about the live band, and everybody's listing what they play and who their endorsements are. And I'm, under my name, it says Tim Horsley, drums, percussion, whatever, and it says, and he has endorsement leprosy. It's on the CD jacket. Because who, by who? I'm sorry? By Keith, Keith Urban's oh, Keith Golden Road record. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> and it's on there because I couldn't get anybody to, to touch me. Couldn't get anyone to touch me. It was the craziest thing. And we were on the Brooks and Dunn tour. We were playing amphitheaters in front of 20,000 people in mind, and I couldn't get a drum endorsement for nothing. Isn't that crazy? What? However, I've always gotten audio gear. Always gotten audio gear. Audio guys learn what they're, and they're just like, here, how about this? Oh, try this. DBX, uh, when I was with Jamie O'Neill, the DBX people when I was out in Utah, just gave me four channels of compression one time. Here, man. Wow. Use this. Just let me hear what you're doing. It's like, okay. Yeah. The drums, it's like, it's always been really a rough road, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Now, nowadays, though, I am signed with Peisty, with uh, Tim yeah. Shahady over there. Uh-huh. I endorse um, Noble and Cooley Snares, and I have one of their kits. I still use it all the time. I love it. And that's um, Carol Jones and Nick, her son out there in Massachusetts. They're great. Um, Brian Spawns will help me out in the last couple of years when I was with Gary with us a couple live kits. Yeah. Remo, finally, and Vic oh, Firth. Oh, wonderful. But in the beginning, Interesting. it was a desert. But yeah. I was able to get audio gear. And so the, from Keith's gig through the Jamie O'Neill gig, I got hooked up with Transworld Audio out in Las Vegas. They hooked me up with Daking Mike Prees and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they also helped me get a hold of um, some API Mike Prees that I could use. Sure. Helped me out from Jamie's gig with with getting drum mics for the mm-hmm. studio, which I still use. Mm-hmm. Um, Heil Pro Audio. I know Bob Heil. Bob Heil gave me a bunch of mics for the studio. So, man, it's like that's been – it's like I, I think maybe I need to focus on this. Whatever this is, I mean, I need to yeah, – yeah. and so when I first – back to your question. When I first started building it, it was right after Keith's gig and the Jamie's gig. Yeah. I really got my first pieces of gear, computer, because the big investments. I mean, if you – if you're playing guitar or bass, you only need one channel, two right, channels, right. four tops maybe. Right. Drums, you're going to need eight. Yeah. You know, you need eight. If you're really going to do that for anybody, you're going to need eight channels, and that's uh-huh. expensive. Yes. You know, if you're going to do it right, it's going to be, it's cost money. Yeah. So it's just been a slow process to build it up. And more importantly, you got to have a room. You have to have a room that they're going to sound good in. Yes. And that's been more of a process of – that's been a bigger learning curve than anything else. And it's just been trial and error and asking a lot of questions of guys who know a lot more than me about it. But mm-hmm. I finally figured it out. And, and what's the your room, space size? And, and um, oh, You know, I'm not really good at that, about <laughs> visualizing space, and I've never measured it before. A, a bedroom size? No, it's size? basement size. Basement it's size. It's basement size. And I say that the, I think the ceilings are about eight foot. Okay. So I don't have any issues with hanging overhead mics, but um, yeah, um, yeah, I'm, yeah. Did you do anything to the room to treat it? Or yeah. It? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't give away all my secrets. No, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, actually, another audio company that builds, um, I call them gobos, but they're just standing barriers with that have soundproofing, and you can, they open up and sit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I can close them up and lean them against the wall, and I'm not using them. Mm-hmm. And um, I basically encase the kit, you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. close the kit off so that the close mics sound really tight, mm-hmm. but then outside of the gobos, I put the room mics, and that's in, and that's where the room sound comes from, and the room is treated with certain things, and 
some oak paneling to make it sound better because drywall sounds horrible, but oak paneling sounds really good. Interesting. <laughs> Got a couple ribbon mics from Cascade. Um, just out there and find had a friend help me. He sat and played the kit, and I walked around with with in ears in and gun muffles in. So all I could hear was this, and just walked around with a mic, looking for places, looking for the place for sweet spots, nice for certain things, you know. Uh-huh. And you just find it, and then then you have a room sound that people would want to hear because you have to have it now if you're going to offer somebody something unique you need to have a room sound right right and on your website do you have a place where people can hear what you've done absolutely studio that's what um when you when you're on the about page yeah yeah yeah. and you you see the little blurb which is intentionally my wife helped me write that she just said just get it out of the way you know and then get to the bullet points all those links that's all from downstairs from downstairs that's all the stuff from my studio and when you go to the studio the audio there's a media tab the media tab has all the videos of stuff i've done um like live performance right videos right, not right. like music videos um and then there's an audio tab and all that stuff is all samplers from the from the studio yeah nice yeah. nice okay i was i was curious to know where those were were yeah. from and you know, yeah I, all sounds... that stuff is from everything that i'm so people can hear what it is i'm doing down are there are you producing as well are you working just things? just this very very focused i'm not trying to because i've been asked before oh can we do a band down there and like no it's not what this is mm-hmm. i'll do a bass player maybe but that's it's okay. a, it's drum overdub it's um it's about you sending me files with whatever is going to be a keeper you know. And tell me that about that process. You're reaching out oh, and saying, that's send been, me this. That's, that's an interesting. That's been another learning curve because you have to – you are basically a producer. And for, one of the reasons I ask is because in, you know, when I was doing that, looking mm-hmm. around your website, I, I, I thought you, you make a point and say, okay, send me these files. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you send me the scratch track, mm-hmm. simplify it. <laughs> Keep it as. Was that part of the learning curve? That's like, always part of the learning because curve. Because I know that's always been a challenge for those that re- do, that overdub drums mm-hmm. is getting that track and say I couldn't find, I couldn't find the feel. I couldn't find the pocket yeah. it, to the point where even um, we were uh, talking with Brian Fullen, mm-hmm. and he's like, I play a little guitar, and sometimes I get these tracks, and they're so bad that I have to play guitar and make my own new track with me playing yeah, on it just I've, to give me a guide track. I so, have been tempted to do that. Yeah. And that's the equivalent of somebody coming to you like, hey, fix my car or change the oil in my car and you get into it and you realize the transmission needs work and then you just do it for them. Would you would would you know any mechanic that's gonna do? It's like yes. you've got to draw a line and go hmm, yes. and that's what the, that's what though. Even though it's written on the website, still some people don't. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, the Nashville people are the ones that don't do it. People around the town follow those rules just to the T, but people in town never do. They'll and send me MP3s. They'll send. They'll do all the things that they shouldn't do. Right. But um, they'll, they'll, those instructions are specific because I'm a lot of times. Sc- a lot of times they don't even know what they want as an end product. And that's why that one statement's there about send me what you think is essential. Like what's you gonna what's really gonna you gonna keep? Mm-hmm. Like, are you gonna play acoustic guitar on this song? You know? Mm-hmm. If so, really play that well. Mm-hmm. You know, get rid of the electric if that's not a keeper. Don't worry about giving me background vocals. And then give me your sing me your melody. Mm-hmm. And so I can hear the like I said, the essentials of what your your groove's gonna be. And that alleviates a lot of that problem because right. I'll send it back. I'll say, man, ah, well, you need to help me out here. Oh, you know, yeah. Skype helps. You can talk to people. I had a guy in India, 
crazy, great story. But it was like every Sunday morning at like 6 a.m. I had to get up and talk to him on Skype about stuff. But he had this beautiful song that I'd never, he never sent me. I asked him one time to send me the lyrics because they weren't in English. But this is beautiful song yeah. that had a structure that didn't make any sense because it was based off Indian music and not like sort of the Nashville structure, right. you know, of uh, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, you know, yeah, sure. bridge out. And... Um, you know, we had that same kind of discussion. Well, help me out here. Tell me what it is you're wanting to look. Where do you where do you see this happening? Where do you and I I try to guide them down the path a little bit so that I don't have I have less work to do. Hmm. And that's why all those are instructions. Not from the technical to the musical. Because the technical is, yeah, you gotta send me a wave file because MP3s have latency and it will add milliseconds to the front of a song. So if you pull it into your digital audio workstation and you put it at marker zero right. the click's going to be late in time by about 10 milliseconds and i got to go in and then clip it and try to scoot it and make it you know mp the mp3s have latency it's horrible yeah. send me a wave file they don't you lay them in you'll see the waveform start right at the beginning of the grid just like that you know it's perfect yeah. so from the technical but also into the musical like i said and i just try to coach i try to coach them through what i think they want to have yeah yeah no, I like that. You become it definitely makes you if you feel sort of like you're producing because, you know, you're trying to coach out of them what you think they really want. You know, it's customer service. Some songs I get are really great. Some songs aren't, and on the ones that maybe that aren't, it really helps them get a better song. You know what I mean? Because um, they just they just don't have as much experience, and they you know it's not up to the uh, to the quality of other artists, and so that sort of customer service comes through and helps them out. Right. You know. And I think most drummers and most musicians can attest to this. When you're tracking a really great song, yeah. easy to find the part, easy to play along with, easy to get a good feel for. Yeah, there's a band in South Carolina, William Wilde. Mm -hmm. They're actually touring around now in a van. God bless them. <laughs> I couldn't do that. That was another rant I have, actually. But um, when I heard the song they wanted me to work on, I was it was one of those moments. It was really late at night. Um. And I heard, I remember hearing it and thinking, "Oh my gosh, I got one! Like oh, this is a really good one. Holy yeah. crap!" You know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was, a, I really enjoyed working on that song. And that's the, <clears throat> that's the easy thing. What I was going to say was, it's the difficult songs. Your job is to go in and try and make this sound better. Oh, come yeah. up with a. I mean, gosh, there's songs. Sometimes it's so bad, and, and it's not necessarily the performance or the feel. Sometimes it's just it's a it's a real challenge. Like, what, what do I even do with this? How do I? Mm -hmm. Where do I even begin? It's not telling me the 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 yeah. part isn't just kind of coming <clears throat> to me. I, and and I kind of play this game where I'll say, um, so um, what are you what are you thinking here? What are you thinking? You here? know, that's my way of saying also, I don't know what to play right you, now. It's also I got a little blurb. I said um, I asked the question like. It's on the. I can't remember exactly the way it's listed on the website, but I ask this same question. But when I talk to them, I say, "What are you listening to these days?" Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I and they'll tell you. They'll be because that's the way the creative process works. When I've been listening to a lot of Matt Chamberlain, that's going to come out of me, and I'm going to play the. I'm going to play some of that. It's going to come out. Mm -hmm. If someone's been listening to Nickelback and they want me to do a song, and they say, "Oh man, I've been listening to Nickelback," I go, "Okay." Now I, I mean I know what kind of snare sound you're going to hear, mm -hmm. and I kind of got an idea what kind of part you want, and it answers it alleviates the the problem. Sure, you know, it alleviates sure. the it alleviates the issue. So the, ask that if if you're tracking for someone online, don't say what do you want. Say what are you listening to? Because a lot of times they don't know. They don't know what yeah. they want. They just want you to be great. Yeah. But I, I got to somehow plug into their subconscious and find out what it is that's inspiring them to write the song. That. Yeah, man. So I ask great. them, what, what are you listening to? Because nine times out of ten, 
the music that this goes back to our other point, the music that's flowing through them that they're listening to is going to come out in their art. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to get. Yeah, yeah. I hope you guys are listening to this because I just had, that's that's good. I'm yeah. learning. I'm learning. That's great. Um, then you can get closer to their oh their yeah. vision of what they wanted right, right, right. to begin with. Let's talk industry trends, because this is my biggest rant right now. You got and it, And I have man. to say this. I'll, if, if any guys in town listen, this is something you need to say, start saying no to. Um, it's the Sprinter van. There have been a lot of cost-cutting. Everybody's always trying to cut costs, mm-hmm. right? This new trend about Sprinter vans I really have an issue with. Okay. Um, because I have a two-year-old little girl. I bought cars to protect her. She's my little girl. So, you know, I, 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 bought a two, I, I bought my wife a tank. This car is in the best shape. You put her in that car. You know, I'm getting ready to buy a Subaru for myself. So I, when I, she's in that car, I know she's safe, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me why a record label would put a quarter of a million dollars into an artist mm-hmm. and then send them on the road in a Sprinter van. Mm-hmm. First, I don't, they may look like a bus, Mm-hmm. When you open them up, that slide that door open, right. but they're not. Yeah. Okay. They're not on the inside. They're they're. Um, I don't know. I took a trip from Nashville to um, Lincoln, Nebraska, with with uh, someone, and we were all beat up by the time we got there. Yeah, I you can know? imagine. It was just beat up because you can't rest on it, you know. So yeah. we, and the second problem I have, and this is the real problem, is they won't hire professional drivers. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody on the road has anxiety about the road. The first time you're in a bunk and you hear a rumble strip, mm-hmm. everybody's going to deal with insomnia. They're going to deal with a certain amount of fear about the fact that you're going to realize one day, hey, I'm not invincible. Mm-hmm. This may seem like some just endless weekend up here, but there's somebody up front that's responsible for all of our lives, right? Right, right. <clears throat> and so we all know that anxiety about, wow, I'm, I'm not having trouble sleeping tonight. I'm afraid we're something might happen, you know? Yeah. I've, I've been asked to go out on two different gigs for new artists, and on both gigs, I got emails that said, oh, the artist will be driving up to upstate New York. The artist is going to be driving us to upstate New York. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've watched, I was around, there was an artist back in the turn of the century named Clay Davidson, who... Uh, Big up-and-comer, great singer, great voice. He was wearing the duster and the hat before Eddie, got, Eddie Montgomery, right? Yeah. I remember doing a radio show with him at the Trade Centers. That tells you when this was. And he had a bus wreck and that really st- stale, stalled his career out and, and, and nothing, you know. And we all have that fear. Yeah. You put guys in a Sprinter van, that would have been a whole different story, you know. So he was in a bus. He was in a bus, in the, in the, right. And now we're putting artists in these Sprinter vans and we're driving to places. Would you want Brooke Hogan driving you up to the middle of Ohio in a Sprinter van? Right. You know, to like to go to a gig. So I just afraid someone's gonna get hurt. Right. You know, I just say just don't do it. I mean, right. they gotta start. It's scary. Somebody's gonna get really hurt. Right. And because like, who do you? I mean, you expect the road manager to be your driver? You know, like they've got enough work to do during the day, and then also they've got to do a five-hour trip at midnight to some other city to do it all over again. Right. Man. Something bad's gonna happen. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, I, I, I hope. I hope. 
I hope somebody will change this trend. And if you want to use one of those things, you'll hire a driver to go out there and do it with you. Because right. someone's going to get hurt. Yeah. I mean, with all due respect to Brooke Hogan, I wouldn't want her driving me around for three days. Right, right. You know? Because then just, they have to perform, and they're they on the same sleep too. schedule as yeah. you are. Or you're hoping the bass player didn't drink that night because he's got a shift at 3 a.m. to go. You know, right. it's like, woo. Right, right. That's just too scary for me. It's way too scary, man. Been there? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand. And the thing about uh, bus tours and the driver is I've always noticed that, okay, guys, listen, we don't have cleanup rooms. We do have the room for the driver, of course, mm-hmm. of course, because uh, – or we're going to be at this hotel. Now, listen, the driver's on this floor, so everybody uh, yeah. either stay out of the way or whatever – but that always seemed to be a real big deal. It is a big deal, the driver man. Driver has to sleep. We need to get him to the hotel. Where's our runner? It's the most that when you're touring, that is, he's the fifth beetle in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. it's like he's as important as anything out there. Yeah. You know, he's responsible for your safety when you're sleeping, and the fact that people are sending out their new artists without drivers is really scary. It's yeah. really scary because you just you hire me to play the drums, you hire this guy to be your road manager. We're not drivers. Mm-hmm. You know, that actually is a skill, you know, because we all know the good ones from the bad ones. You know what I mean? And I know they probably don't want to get in sprinter vans and drive people anywhere because it's a sprinter van. But still, man, that's it's dangerous. It's scary, man. I don't want to do it. I got I got a two year old daughter at home. I know. I I don't want to be, you know, driving down the road with the guitar player up there driving me through Chicago at three in the morning. Well, and it's interesting because uh, having children changes the dynamics uh, of many things in your life. Uh, but when my uh, son was born 13 years ago, uh, that's when uh, a lot of things changed uh, for me in what type of gig I got paid, what my bottom dollar was, mm-hmm. lots of those things. And it was amazing that uh, it was really simple to say, look, this is what I need. Mm-hmm. I've got a family now. And uh, and people are like, oh, okay, yeah. okay. Now, I probably should have been doing that a little bit sooner, but yeah. something uh, motive that was a Big motivation and, and keeping that you know well, together. Yeah, we'll just close it out with this. A lot of people may think that buses and drivers are luxury, and my point is, I think they're necessity. Yeah, for the safety of your artists and the people they crew, and just for their ability to get out there and perform, perform and sell the product that you're trying to sell to people. You know. Can you tell me a bit about the Keith Urban gig? Yeah. Um, uh, only because it has, uh, I know it was a it was a big part of you getting started in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, it's been uh, a coveted gig, I think, in mm-hmm. town. Uh, there's always been great drummers <clears throat> on the gig. Um, so uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time, but just kind of tell me about that experience and well, I, I, uh, what I led said, to it. Um, I got that job because of a road manager. Susie Boggess' old road manager was his original road manager, and he needed someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I got the call. That was in 1999. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, to me, that's um, watching an artist go from the beginnings to the plat to the zenith is the best part of a gig. And when I think back on that gig, that's what I think about because I've got, I have photographs of us all unloading the bay of a bus together, like Keith grabbing guitars out of a bay. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
mm-hmm. all of us packed in the back lounge singing songs of yeah. the you know because Those we pictures are on, are on eBay bus. right now. They're selling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <clears throat> we had a lot of firsts. We did a lot of things together for the first time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, all those Tonight Show performances, big amphitheater shows, like those were all firsts for not only me, but for him and a lot of the other people in the band. And yeah. so that was a good – when I think back on that time, that's what I think about the most because that that experience was just excitement. It was just excitement watching the rocket take off yeah. and watching all of the people, all of the things that aligned to make that gig happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this not only just – him being the the entertainer that he is, the guy's a human jukebox. I've got so many great stories about him being able to just pull songs out of thin air and perform them. It's amazing. Wow, wow. Watching him, uh, the condition, not only that, but also the condition of like where his label was at the right time, mm-hmm. where country radio was at the right time, what they were looking for. Right. And right. it just all the grooves just laid in together, and he just it just took off. You yeah. know. And it was weird watching it. When you're out on a bus, you're isolated. You don't really know what's going on. But also you start to see the crowd change from being – we used to play out in the, in the southwest at the line dance bars in yeah. Arizona and just we clear the dance floor. They'd be out there line dancing to stuff, you know. Yeah. And then we'd get up and start playing and they would just walk away and sit down. And it was just like, oh, this is brutal. Mm-hmm. But then we watched it change. All of a sudden we'd go to places and they're all singing but for the grace of God. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> they're singing your everything back to us. Somebody knows the lyrics. Like, oh, what's happening? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially when you see people <clears throat> sing the lyrics to original material. It's it's pretty cool. He used to, we had a song called Out, he had a song called Out, Out on My Own. And he used to jump off stage and run around. And when everybody's seated, you can do that. You know, you get out right. and you run around playing guitar. And it was incredibly entertaining. I said, he's just one of the best entertainers I think the town has. I remember one time he ran so far away that his wireless gave out. You know what I mean? He was so far out in front of us. You know, he was actually out in the carnival, you know, out way out, way too far. It was hilarious. But then I remember one point him running out and the bleachers emptied and tackled him. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, you know, that's when you know the things are changing. Like, what's going on? All of a sudden now, wait, we don't know any better. We're in a bus. It's just the same thing we're doing every day. And all of a sudden we go to some venue and he goes running down the steps and running out. All of a sudden all these girls empty out of a bleacher and they, they stand up and it's, I watch him. He's still playing and he looks and I see his guitar go like this and it goes whoop and then gone. He sinks into the ground. And we were just out there playing, vamping while he, and oh no, I see the road manager yeah. out there moving around trying to get him and grabs him and pulls him back on stage and he's just laughing about it and, you know, and gets up and keeps going. But I was like, oh wow. This is the this is the rocket ship taping on. That was the funnest time. Yeah, I think about that. It was a lot, a lot of fun. That's awesome. Was that an audition or was that just a, no. a call? I've okay. never, I've never, I've never gotten a gig from an audition. <clears throat> and auditions are. Um, I still believe that if there is an audition, there's someone who already has it before you go in. Hmm. Um, because, like I said earlier, when we were talking about when I was on the other side of the table. Um, listening to guys, I already had my plan. I knew who I thought would be the best for the gig before the t- 10 guys came in to get it, you know, because mm-hmm. I just knew. I already knew. Everybody knows that you, if you're auditioning to begin with, we all know you have facility. We all know that you can play. So that's not what it's about, yeah. you know. I actually did an audition this year, but it wasn't to get the gig because I knew I wasn't going to get it because I know how the game's played. Yeah. Um, I got called. I got asked by – um. I can't think of Chris's last name right now. Um, to audition for Terry Clark, right? Because she was going up and she was doing some dates. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was right. last minute, too. 
And I, I was like, well, I already know somebody's already got this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So actually, when I showed up, I said it out loud. I said, I know you've already got somebody. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. So I'm here because I want to play a Terry Clark. I yeah. want to make your decision really, really difficult. <laughs> and now, Throw and a I, wrench in the works. Yeah, so I said, I'm not here. I know I'm not going to get it. You've already given it to somebody. And they sort yeah. of looked at me and smiled sort of coy. Yeah. And I said, I'm just going to make a decision really hard to do. Because mm-hmm. I learned the record part like to the T and I sang. And it's like, they were like, hmm, shit. You know, I, once I saw the look, I was like, okay, I've succeeded. And it was also good for the network, too. I wanted to meet everybody in the organization. So, right, right. You know, but no, I've never gotten any gigs from auditions. That gig, the Keith gig came from the road manager, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then from the Keith gig, I subbed out the Jamie O'Neill gig, right. and I got the Jamie O'Neill gig. Yeah. Um, from uh, uh, the tour with Kenny Chesney that was, had Dina Carter on it, I got yeah. the Dina Carter gig. Okay. From Rachel Proctor's gig, I met Chris Responte, who got me the Jace Everett gig. Yeah, yeah, Chris Responte. Right. I thought I recognized him. <laughs> right? He had short hair on the video. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, yeah. wait a minute. Wh- That's wh- Chris, yeah. Um, who? What's the singer? Jace Everett. He's the guy. He's a great artist, songwriter um, that wrote the theme song for the TV show True Blood. That's what yeah. I recognized when I was watching that video. Yeah, you that's play. the theme song for True Blood. And that's yeah. my favorite Tonight Show performance of all times. Okay. And that's a, um, I'm blanking on names today. Um, that drum part is one of my, it's a really difficult part. It is part a great to play. part. I used to watch, yeah. I started watching True Blood. I don't think I got too far into it. Um, but my favorite yeah, I part. Yeah, I didn't watch the show either. But my favorite part was that the, intro. Was the intro? That intro was great. And, and I kept and I was like, that drum part is so cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude. Shannon Forrest, there he is. Finally came to me. Shannon Forrest part, and um, yeah, it's great, right? He d- did Jace's whole record, and there was some really interesting, just just left the center, but still country that are just great parts. I love playing those parts. But anyway, Chris got me that gig. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then from the Jamie O'Neill gig, they opened for Gary Allen a few times. And I met Brian Arsenal, and I actually just ran into him randomly in town a couple of times. Once, I was returning a metronome to Rich Redman at Jackson's. He was having lunch with Brian Arsenal. And then I was having sushi down in Brentwood, and Brian just happens to walk in. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we need a drummer. That was that simple. We sat down and had lunch together, and he, I was hired. To, and so it was never been anything about auditions before. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. I got the Miss Willie Brown after the fact the same way. Which I loved that gig. That was a lot of fun to what do. What was it again? Miss Willie Brown. I don't know. Yeah, you could hit that up online. They were an indie act signed through, I can't even remember, um, but out in California. They were the first independent artist to ever play on um, Jimmy Kimmel. Oh. And they just had so much fire. Yeah. Really exciting. Um, Are you on that performance? <clears throat> no, not on uh, that one, no. Okay, okay. But they came to town and they started to try to like... Um, um, you know, do it the natural way. Yeah, which they didn't really—they didn't fit inside the machinery very well, unfortunately. But they were great. But I didn't get that gig from an audition either. You know, mm. they just—that's not—that's not—that's just never how it works. You know, wow. You gotta get the game. You gotta come to town and get to know people. Right. Prove right, yourself right. that you know what you're doing, and people right. will remember who you are, and they'll call you. Yeah. You know. Um, <clears throat> tell me about your setup, because one of the first things I noticed when you were playing with Jamie O'Neill that time I saw you. Your crash symbol is way off to the left, and I know you're not the only person I've seen that. But yeah, that was did an that experiment. Evolve? That was an experiment that never worked. 
And it was you all do about that now. No, I don't do that now. I don't. It's too. The, it was like left of my hi hat yeah, over here. It was way that was from something visual. I was trying. I was trying to take cues from people on stage, and it was like. Uh, it just, that was why I did it, and it just didn't work out. I didn't like it. I I just needed it right there, and I had to put it back, you know. But okay. um, I tried. You know, it was, it was it was done for a reason. I mean, who was the drummer more, used to work I thought for? There Michael? was more to it than that. I thought it was no. going to be a really interesting story. Could you make something? Up? I could make something up about it. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I can't on the spot, but um, no, it was true. I remember I was in a motorcycle accident. <clears throat> yeah, my left arm was like this. That's right. And uh, <laughs> I like to hit it when I, up from the on the upswing, like over my shoulder. I like to hit this. Too many cymbal. DCI videos. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I remember the there was a uh, there's a great R&B drummer that used to work for Michael Jackson and other guys who he used to have his cymbals way, way up high and modern drummer asked him the question, why do you get your cymbals so high? He says, I'm trying to take visual cues from people on stage so I had to get them out of the way. You know? Yeah, it's, Sugarfoot. It's not Sugarfoot. It's, it's, it's um, not Sugarfoot? It's another guy, yeah. Another guy. But anyway, that's like why he did it. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. And that's comment. why that cymbal had moved. Listeners, comment. <clears throat> Let us know who we're talking about. Yeah. As, I can see his face too. But yeah. it's all of the cymbals are way up high like this so you can, you know, you can see. But um. Do you have any advice for anybody that's getting ready to move to town? That's, uh, I mean, we talked about the networking system and how auditions isn't can be a thing, but it's less of a thing than people realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving from their small town, learning to play double bass and Tommy Aldridge videos, <laughs> and. Uh, now we have. Well, stop doing that. But right. if you want to move, no, I'm not. I'm teasing. Um, well, I'll just use the example that just happened in my life because a guy, a friend named Josh Dobbin, moved to town, drummer, um, that I had met through friends and went out and had lunch with him, and uh, you know, he, I just just helped him network, yeah. helped him start to meet people, you know, mm-hmm. and um, an opportunity came up with. Um, Stream Sound Records, where they were looking for someone for Austin Webb or Dakota Bradley. I can't remember now which one it was. And I just put his name in for it. You know, so do what Josh did. Come to town yeah. and get introduce yourself to people that work. Yeah. You know, I, I he introduced well, he was introduced to me. I liked him. He had a good personality. I thought he was he played well. I got to see him perform. And I, something came up, and I thought, hey, might, that might be good for him, because it's a brand new, it was a new artist, yeah. sort of a new record, record label, and a good place to plug him in, and it worked. Yeah. That's what I would recommend people do, just what Josh did. And where did he meet you initially? Do you remember? Oh, I was introduced to him through, oh my, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was just very gregarious and outgoing, just... You know, and then I got to see him play, and I was like, "Oh, he's good." Yeah, and he's—I like his personality. He's fun to be around. And I was like, "That's all it took." And I was like, "I heard someone. Someone came to me and said, you want to go out in the Sprinter van?'" And I was like, "No, <laughs> 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 no." They said, "Do you want to come out and do this?" And I was like, "Well, I can't. You know, the mind's not completely right." But but I know someone who's new who would really. And he actually jumped in there and took it to the next level. Like he didn't just show up and play drums. He helped him put a whole band together for a couple artists. So he really got in there and. Oh, took charge, nice. so yeah. Nice. So yeah. that gave him something in addition than just his drumming skills, but mm-hmm. I can organize. <clears throat> yeah, he he I came in work. with a, a a full palette of skills, you know, and yeah. they put him to work. Something something to offer beyond. Yeah, now he's like he's he's touring around. I'm happy for him, you know. Nice. That's awesome. That's what people need to do. 
This is an interesting time in the music business because, you know, the revenue stream is drying up. I watched, um, I think his name's Frank Flood from Flood Bumstead McCready. I saw him give a speech to um, the Arizona Businessmen's Association or the New Mexico Businessmen's Association at the Hall of Fame. And he was taught, he gave specific numbers where he was watching the revenue stream of all his artists like diminish exponentially. I don't know the exact numbers he was given, but it was a scary idea to think that, you know, an industry that used to be able to support a lot of middle management, a lot of uh, ancillary services, Mm -hmm. now the revenue stream is going away. What are you going to do? You know? And it's the only the people that have a foothold somewhere that can keep their pay scale the same way, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, actually, back on that point, I'm glad those drivers have somewhat of a union and that they have a rate they get to go do what they do because they are the key to the safety there by the town on the road. Right. And but they people have, that, have a special license yeah, and it's like, to do that. Yeah. And so the drivers that you, the drivers are out there, they, you know, they're going to get paid what they get paid. You know, like diesel is the same price no matter whether diesel prices are diesel prices. They're going to get their money every time you fill up the tank. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, people that have percentages on their artists, they're going to get their percentages of whatever. But the people that don't have a foothold to make sure that, that they're still being compensated for what they do, it's changing. It's changing up, you know. And I, I, I know some musicians. It makes it difficult for guys to be on the road. There's a lot of low rates, you know. There's a lot of people that aren't paying much money because there's not a lot of money on the table. But it seems like in Nashville, if we're just talking about Nashville right now, that there's this modern country right now it just seems like it's blowing up like the they're the ones that are putting together tours that are having success where a lot of tours aren't having success so what where is that well what's not what's i guess i'm thinking of like the florida georgia line the the, true the the luke and brian and i'm thing i and how big that is compared to well uh, i'm luke brian's great like i know kent i know james cook i know uh, um, oh, my name, me and names today. I can't. I, you know Dave, Rist, well, Dave Ristrom playing steel. I know those guys, and I know he's treating his guys when he's paying them really, really well. Yeah. You know. But my first tour as an opening slot, I know, I know that he was not making. He was losing money every show he was out there to promote himself. Yeah. You know, so there had to be a reserve of, of cash flow to put him out there on that first slot of of the Brooks and Dunn tour. To promote him so that people could see who he is, to see what a great entertainer he was. But at the same time, he wasn't making money. You know, he wasn't selling merch. If an artist, if you've got a four bill um, evening, right? Right, right? You got a customer coming in that's going to have you know sixty bucks in his pocket to spend on beer and maybe a souvenir. And you're number four. You're not. I'm not. They're not buying your merch. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It's right. tough. It's still very difficult for those artists. You have to have a big pool of money to still to get you you know, recognition and known yeah. through the system that exists. And that's, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult. So when you have uh, a young player moving to town or looking for work or anybody that's looking for work, uh, sometimes it's, it's difficult to be, uh, you know, discretionary about what work you take mm-hmm. over another because... Yeah. Maybe that one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollar gig is going to be. Well, it's the mar- it is a marketplace, right? Yeah. So you got to be prepared for what it is, for what the market is offering, and what can you do to make it work. You know. Yeah. Me personally, I 
won't do those things, but I have, I, I'm not solely dependent upon the road work to pay my bills. So yeah. if, if it's something that, if it's something that I like, yeah. like if it's a situation I really like or the music I really like, I might take a rate that's not something that I would normally do. Yeah. But if it's, you know, it's not other people may not the way. And if you're trying to break in, you really don't have any leverage for that stuff. You got to think about, once again, it's career planning, right? You got to think about what it is you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think about that when you're, you know, getting in the music business. It's not like most people have had any and business training you, or anything like right. that. And but, how have how have you? Well, I didn't go to years. school. I went to school for business. Okay. I graduated from Southern Illinois University with an accounting degree. You know what I mean? I didn't even think about getting in the music business until after I got out of college. So there's always been a certain sense to me about about this is a career. There's some career playing that has to go in, into this. But where am I seeing myself in five years? What am I going to be doing? So. I mean, back on your you? point, if if a, if a new if a kid comes to town, or if anyone, if a younger, you know, someone is just now getting into town and wants to figure out what it is they want to do, they've got to figure out and say, what's the marketplace going to pay me to do this job, and how can I make it work? If in five years I can be something more than what I am now, they've got to be able to do the math. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have the experience, and you're you're in a place in your life, and you have different plates spinning right now mm-hmm. with the home studio and working yeah. with different artists and things like that. How do you? make a plan for yourself or do you or do you just are you just kind of going right now i'm just kind of going i'm wanting i'm just i've I've had a lot of irons in the fire in the past uh two or three years i i a friend of mine named brennan hunt we had a band project that we were pitching in town for a while that was a whole interesting that was such an interesting experiment once again to be on another side of another table and to be in the conference room playing music to record execs downtown I mean, that's a whole other thing. I joked for the longest time. I said, do you have a conference room? Do you need a band? Why? Where are the people for you? Because we can rock your conference room like nobody else. <laughs> you know, it's five guys in a conference room and horrible lighting, you know, like it's CAA or something in that big room. I'm playing a cajon. I got guys playing acoustic guitar and we're all singing, you know, trying to be entertaining. Like, invest in us. You really want this, right? It's crazy. Um, what was the name of that group? <clears throat> Oklahoma. I wanted to ask. Yeah, <clears throat> I've seen that. I've seen lots of stuff about that. I, it was. Um, I liked it. Brandon, um, he's one of one of the artists that I've worked with for a long time. I've seen him go through different evolutions, and he got the idea to pitch a band, and he called me, and I was like, "Wow, I'm all about it. Let's try to make it work." Yeah. And um, it was his brother, um, David, My- David Meyer, um, Jimmy Herman from um, Kara Underwood's band, Jeff Walkerman, who's out with um, Big and Rich. It was good. It was really good, and we got we we played the conference rooms, man. Like we know all of them. You know, it's pretty cool. I'm involved with a teaching website called HomestudioCorner.com, where I get on there and try to teach home studio owners about how to mic a kit, how to keep microphones in phase. How do you, you know, what is mic pre-saturation? You know, that kind of stuff. Okay. That also helps promote the studio business where I'm trying to record and track for people. You know, I've got the digital rodeo showcase, which I love doing because it keeps you on your toes. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, it's, you're truly, it's a house band thing. Every, every show is new artists, new songs, and you bumper people on and off like you're playing a TV show. It's really cool. Um, and then there's what the live work I pick up as well. So I've got all these things going. I just want one of them to really give me the next gear. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But yet, at this at my stage of life, I've got to figure that. I think probably most guys are now too. 
because once again the industry is evolving and changing. So you've got to fig- you've got to just diversify yourself a little bit. Right. And if you have the opportunity to do it, I mean, everyone is doing it. So right, right. <clears throat> I think that's what I'm uh, seeing now more and more. It's not just where what your station is in life, where you are now. It could be at any place in your career or any age that you realize the value yeah. in diversifying uh, yeah. your work. It's like uh, it's like investment. Uh, if one thing goes away, it can't be your whole <clears throat> world coming down, crashing. Absolutely, you have, to have many things. And the best way to learn that lesson is to have it happen to you a couple right. times. <laughs> I have right. to say, I've had that happen to you a few times where you're just like, "Oh shit, what yeah. am I going to do now?" But um, it helps, you know. And hustling's not easy. And hustling is is part of the game because you are your own business owner. You know, I'm. Yeah. I sell my own my own product, and my product is me, right? Sure. And uh, you gotta you gotta you know I can't just sit around and play contest of champions on my phone all day. You know, you know, I've got to actually do some work. You know, yeah. Try to promote a little bit. You know, make well, how sure do you that manage your downtime? I mean, do you spend any time practicing? I know you talked earlier. I've got my facility. Now I just need to listen. It's music. It's this and that. Yeah, yeah. And we've had this conversation a couple mm-hmm. times before because I'm obsessed with practicing mm-hmm. and trying to keep things in shape. But I also know that you have your set of skills, and yeah. uh, but you can't ever dismiss uh, the 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 listening factor. Well, the pra- my practice nowadays is about it's about music. It's related. It's not related to a facility anymore. Even though a facility is always a kind of a part of it, mm-hmm. it's about something about music. Mm-hmm. You know, when I um, I was going through, I wanted to learn Afro-Cuban music. So I actually went to a guy who was teaching me. Actually, he's a great percussion player and um, knows, you know, he's really awesome. He does something I can't do. But what, he got what? me into a, a, a couple books. And so I would practice that for a while because I was really wanting to kind of understand that style of music a little bit more. And Just so because? I did. Just because. Okay. Dude, I, like, I like the drums. You know yeah, I mean, and so I was doing it just because, you know, yeah. and um, that's so I was practicing something about something about it was about music. Um, I've always been infatuated with the band The Roots, and so every time they got a new record that comes out, I try to just meditate on it, and listen to it a lot, and cop some of those grooves. And now it's even more about sounds. So I'll get a new record about I think it's about music, and I listen. What kind of snare sounds he doing? What is he doing here? What is that? Mm-hmm. How can I recreate that sound? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When Matt Chamberlain does that, anytime he comes out with something new, I'm like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. There's some, or I watch him because he's doing a lot of stuff on VMO now. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how's he doing that? Where's he putting that mic? You know. So practice is. Yeah. It's a little broader. It's not just about my hands and my feet. It's about it's about my ear. It's about mics, it's about sounds, it's a little broader based. And I saw you play uh, House of Blues with Gary Allen, and I no, said, man, I love yeah. that video, but it immediately... I had a, a look of sadness came upon me. <laughs> yeah, well, what's that? And you were talking about yeah, your snare drum it was did. falling apart. apart on me. Yeah. And uh, I, I have... Great performance. I'm really. It was really yeah. cool to do. But wow, I, I, the snare drum I had, the strainer started, uh, the snare started slipping out of the, the bass, and so I'd get through a song, and it was like it wasn't. There's was no tension on snares anymore, and I'd have to rig it, and then play the next song, and it would go the away. Flow again. of the show. And, no, Did you I, have a backup? Snare I couldn't get or? attention. It was like, um, if I remember correctly, the the first couple songs because of what we were all bumped up, they were all bumped together, and I couldn't get anybody's attention. 
You know what I mean? So I just had to, I was just on my own, like, oh, here we go, you know. And then somewhere in the middle of the show, we, we were able to flip, switch it out. But, you know, I got through the majority of it with, you know. Well, I, I the, the snare drum from Saint I, Anger by Metallica, you know what I mean? That's what I was basically <laughs> up there playing, bong, gong, with no snare sound. And uh, that, was, that was unfortunate. Happens. It still sounded great, man. It still sounded really good. Thank you. Have, 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 have there ever been other things that have happened live, at like something, a piece of gear falling apart or something like that? I have, that, like you know, we all have anxiety dreams. You guys have any anxiety dreams about stuff? Like, you know, you, you're in a dream and you're back at school and you can't remember your schedule? I have that. My wife actually has a reoccurring anxiety uh, dream where she gets called. I, she, she gets a phone call. And they're asking for me mm-hmm. to play a gig. And she says, oh, he's not here, but I, I can play. Oh, wow. And so she goes and sets my drums up. And then they go, all right, get ready to start. And she counts the song. And she goes, wait, I don't know how to play drums. Oh, my that's, gosh. That's funny. But the mm-hmm. fact that it's reoccurring, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what that means. I, mine is, is that when I go to the stage, the kit's not set up. Oh, the like anxiety? I, yeah. I walk up, I get up on stage, and we get ready to count for off, and the drums are all there. It's just they're laying on the riser. They're not that. set up. I'm that. trying to set stuff up and play at the same time. That's the, yes, I've weird? had that before. Yeah, yes. that's yeah, fine. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so in, in real it, life? In real life. <laughs> in real life, if Welcome I have back. anything. Um, <laughs> I've I got so many stories about other people and horrible things. One of the, one that jumps to my brain is doing the Paralympic Games in Australia, and we were playing to a track, and we were on an elevator, lifting to this giant stage because they had just done the Sydney Olympics, like the real you know the, the main Olympics, and then the Paralympic Games were right after it. So it was that same stage, that same arena that was built. Wow! And we're rising up really slow, and all of a sudden the track starts, and we're like. We're like under the stage, and we're all looking at each other, laughing. Like the music's going, and like we're not there. And you know, all of a sudden we come running out to like the Beatles and sit down and start faking like we're playing. That was a pretty interesting moment. You know, <laughs> I did have a moment where I forgot my in ears one time, but that wasn't a big deal. You know, um, oh, yeah. nah, thankfully, knock yeah, on been... some wood somewhere. I'm so, not. I never had a. You know, you, the normal stuff, you There's know, cymbal time, stand yeah. falls down or something like that. Yeah, but nothing, yeah. nothing catastrophic. Oh, here's a good one. Um, but it, it was about a piece of gear. It wasn't me. It was Jamie O'Neill playing the one of the rodeos in Texas. I think it's the one that's in Dallas where a lot of them push you out. But this is a big one. It's got a, um, it's got a big uh, um, screen above it now. And it's a big, you know, big visual screen behind mm-hmm. you for the yeah. video wall. There's a big video wall behind you in a bug, and that's the word I'm searching for. And they're pushing us out, and the tracks go down on us. And the whole stage just goes into an absolute panic, you know, because we don't have our tracks. We don't have our tracks. And James LeBonk's playing guitar, and he's standing there just sort of cocked up like this. And they're, like, freaking out. What are we going to do? How are we going to start the first song? And he looks at him and goes, Tim's going to count one, two, three, and I'm going to start, man. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what we did. And we sounded just fine. You know what I mean? We I sound, know, everything sounded I just know, fine. I know. No. <laughs> we had an outdoor show last year, uh, and there was these uh, these cranes on either side of the stage holding up these, these big rows of speakers mm-hmm. and stuff. And one started overheating and caught on fire. Oh, wow. And it was a 4th of July. Families out there everywhere. And uh, so we're, like, looking at each other, and, and the engineer, just he's going, just keep going, keep going. Well, Somebody got fire. in. They oh, lowered wow. the crane. 
They put the fire out. We're still playing. Like, are you sure? Oh, like, wow. Keep going. They put the fire, pulled the crane back up. You really? see, like, people grabbing their kids and moving out of the way. Oh, man. And uh, so it was fine, and they just, just kept going. The show must go on. Right, right. Gee right. whiz, man. Man, I think we've covered a lot of good stuff, man. Yeah. I think we've covered your... Thanks for letting me come in here yeah, and do yeah. this. I, I had a good time. Yeah, good. Well, it was good to get to know you a little bit more. And uh, again, uh, I think there's lots of great stuff online for people to get to know you mm-hmm. as well and, and yeah. hear and, and see what you're doing. And TimHorsley.com. Yeah, go do that. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Hey, man. So there you go. There's our interview with Tim. I want to thank him for taking the time to sit down and talk to us and uh, share with us some of the insight of recording at home. And as you can tell, I'm a huge fan of his pocket and his feel. And if you go to his website and check out some of the tracks that he's recorded, you can hear what I'm talking about. I also want to thank Mike Jackson again for all his technical help in uh, helping me put this together, both the audio and the video, for the soon-to-be YouTube channel that we'll have up and rolling. Again, if you have a second and you can go to iTunes and uh, put a comment in there in the rate and review section, that's also a big help. But for now, thanks for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.